Judges chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishatim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishatim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. And so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab. For 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near, Gil near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The literal Hebrew is, I have a secret thing for you. I have a secret thing for you. The king said, quiet. And all his attendants left him. 
Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they had waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Seira. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered. For the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Midianites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel. And the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's good stuff. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, two weeks ago, Pastor Amanda invited us into the book of Judges, which will be our focus in the evening worship services for the next few months. And as we begin, I have a bit of a wondering, not including Pastor Amanda's sermon two weeks ago, how many of you have heard a sermon on the book of Judges before? Raise your hands. Oh, it's not very many. So, of those of you who have heard a sermon on the book of Judges before, how many of them were about Gideon? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There you are. There. Oh, yeah. Gideon's in the book of Judges. Okay. Uh, for, for, okay. So, how many of you have heard a sermon from the book of Judges on the story of Samson? Raise your hands. How many of you have heard a sermon from the book of Judges, not including Pastor Amanda's sermon from two weeks ago, that was about neither Gideon nor Samson? Raise your hands. Yeah, a few. Yeah. I was actually impressed when I went back and looked through the sermon archives of uh, Community CRC. Uh, In the past five years, there have been five sermons from the book of Judges, and none of them 
have been about Gideon or Samson. I thought that was pretty impressive. But the truth of the matter is that the book of Judges is not a book that the church visits very frequently. And I think it's clear why. It's a bloody book. It's violent. At the end of the book, as you'll see later in the service, we have one of the darkest and most disturbing stories in all of Scripture. And the judges aren't exactly role models, so it's difficult to use them as examples that we ought to try and live up to as Christians following Christ. Most of the sermons that I've heard on the book of Judges tried to do this by saying, you know, be like Gideon and let God use your weakness, or like, be like Samson and grow out your hair and kill a bunch of people, I guess. That was a joke. But mostly, I think that we avoid the book of Judges because there is no getting around the fact that this is a book about the complete and utter failure of God's people. Last week, Pastor Amanda introduced us to three important concepts that we're going to be keeping in mind as we walk through the book of Judges. Covenant, character, and cycles, three C's. She did the old CRC pastor thing, which I thought was nice. And these three concepts are in the background throughout the book. Will God's people remain faithful to the covenant? And more importantly, will God remain faithful to the covenant? What is the character of God's people? And what is the character of the God whom they serve? And so last week, looking at chapters 1 and 2, Pastor Amanda led us through the cycle that we saw play through twice already today in our scripture reading for this evening. Israel falls into, the, falls into sin, is delivered into the hands of their enemies. Israel cries out to God, and God sends a judge to deliver them. And the land knows peace for a time until the judge dies, and Israel falls back into sin and starts the cycle over again. And today we move from the introduction to the book of Judges to the stories of individual judges themselves, which is kind of an exciting thing. This is the exciting part of the book of Judges, walking through these individual stories. But even our passage for today begins with something of a review of the introduction, especially the, the list of the nations that continue to plague Israel, the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Parasites, Hivites, per, Perizzites, not Parasites, Hivites and Jebusites, and there's a few surrounding nations, nations that surround Israel that are also mentioned, and we'll see them come into conflict with the people of Israel later in the story of Judges, notably the Philistines and the Sidonians from Tyre and Sidon to the north of Israel. And the text, even in this short introduction at the beginning of chapter 3, gives us a clear reason for why these pagan nations were allowed to remain. The Lord is testing his people. And I think before we dive into the stories of Othniel and Ehud, this is worth reflecting on. The Lord tests his people. And the scripture passage for today gives two reasons 
as to what God is testing his people for. The author tells us in verse 1 that God is testing his people to teach the younger generation the art of war because they didn't know war. But then in verse 4, the author says that God is testing his people to see whether they would follow his commandments. And some people make a big deal out of that being a contradiction within the text, but I don't think that it's that difficult to see how these two things are related. There's a thread that weaves its way through Scripture that God is preparing His people. That God is preparing His people. And we see it pop up in a variety of ways through the Bible. The teacher in Proverbs 17 writes, The crucible for for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And throughout Scripture, we see that God is preparing His people, refining them like precious metals to form them into something truly great, to form them into His masterpiece. God reveals this purpose to Abraham when He blesses him, and He tells him, through you all nations of the earth will be blessed. Even in our sermon this morning, In the passage from Genesis chapter 1, we heard how God, even in creation, was already preparing his people. Have you ever wondered about the fact that God commands Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it, but then places them in a small garden? It was never God's intention for his people to remain in the garden. The garden was a symbol for God's presence on the earth, for the way that God brings order in the wilderness, beauty in the chaos. The garden was God's presence on earth, where humanity served as his ambassadors, bringing order and flourishing and peace to the creation. The land of Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, serve a similar function. It's like a beachhead for God's kingdom operation on the earth. The land of Israel in the Old Testament, the people of the church in the New Testament, this is where the principles of the kingdom of God are supposed to be modeled and lived out for all the world to see, to all people and nations. And once all the earth sees the powerful grace of God, the freedom and the flourishing that is to be found in obeying his commandments, the world shall know peace. But following God's commandments, remaining obedient to his law, inevitably, brings God's people into conflict with the powers and the principalities of this fallen world. And so we see throughout the Bible that God exhorts his people to remain vigilant, discerning, on guard, ready for battle, because there is nothing in the world that is neutral. 
the things we say, the things we do, the things we buy, orient our hearts. And anything that demands the devotion of our hearts is not neutral. Either our hearts are pointed toward God, or they are pointed to the powers and principalities of this world. The challenge that God gives to his people is to obey God while living in this fallen world. To turn our hearts toward God even as the powers and principalities clamor for our attention and our devotion. And turning our hearts to God often means doing battle against these powers that seek to claim our allegiance and turn us away from God. A battle not fought with weapons of violence necessarily, but with words, with scripture, with study, prayer, worship, love, reconciliation, and forgiveness, as one biblical scholar puts it. I run the risk here of spiritualizing things too quickly because there's a very real challenge to the sheer physical violence of the book of Judges, and we'll deal with those stories as we visit them. But at its heart, and what I want to focus on this evening, the book of Judges is a story about our hearts. Are our hearts pointed toward God? Or are they drawn away by the glamorous allure of the idols of this world? How can we live faithfully as God's people in this fallen, sinful world? How can we pursue holiness and obedience to God in the world of powers and principalities that demand that we pledge our allegiance to them? In New Testament language, from Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John 17, how do we live in a way that shows people that we are not of this world, even as we live in this world? How do we live in a way that demonstrates that we are citizens of a kingdom that is yet to come, even while we wait for it? To come. That's what the book of Judges is about. Where is your heart pointed? What do you love? Who do you love? The other side of the story, of course, is not about us at all, but it's about God. The book of Judges doesn't ask anything of God's people that it doesn't ask of God first. And throughout the book of Judges, we will see time and time again, despite the failure of his people to follow the most basic of his commands, that God's heart is always pointed toward his people. God's love is always for them. That God is faithful beyond our unfaithfulness. 
gracious beyond our churlishness, merciful beyond our stone-heartedness, dependable beyond our forgetfulness, and powerful beyond our weakness. When his people sin, God forgives. When his people forget, God remembers. And when his people set down a path that will bring destruction and harm to everyone and everything they love, God delivers them from their own folly. Which brings us to Othniel. Othniel is the first judge of Israel. His story is short, as you can see. It's just five verses. And there's really not much here that would make us remember him. But the way that the book of Judges is written, it's actually really interesting. Because the author of the book of Judges sets up Othniel as the model for us to compare all the other judges to. The story of Othniel, the the short five-verse story, gives us the eyes to see, the tools to discern what is going on in the rest of these stories. And so, okay, so I debated about whether to do this because it feels really pedantic and kind of teachy to me. But I'm going to walk you guys through the six, <laughs> the six principles of Othniel that help us understand what is going on in the rest of the stories of the judges. And for those of you who are interested, these six elements come from Dennis Olson, who's a biblical scholar, who wrote the commentary on judges for the New Interpreter's Bible Commentary. So thank you, Dennis Olson. Credit where credit is due. So there's six principles from the Othniel story that help us understand what is happening in the stories of the other judges. Number one is Israel's sin. Othniel's story begins like this. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs, which are the gods of Canaan, the Canaanites. And as we continue through the book of Judges, we'll see that the story of each judge begins with a description of Israel's sin. And this list of gods that Israel turns to is going to become longer and longer as we go through the book of Judges. Israel will fall deeper and deeper into sin and deeper and deeper into specific acts of idolatry and depravity. Number two is the nature of the foreign conquest. God's anger against Israel in the book of Judges always manifests itself in foreign conquest, but the way that the author of the book of Judges describes this conquest will grow over the course of the book from generic to severe and detailed and long. In Othniel's story, the people of Israel are subject to the king of Aram. That's it. That's as much detail as we get. But later stories will go through great lengths to describe battles, exiles, slavery, forced labor, tribute, and oppression 
of God's people. Number three is God's response to Israel's cry. The people of God cry out, and God responds by raising up a deliverer. In the story of Othniel, God's response is immediate, which is what we'll see through the first few stories of the judges. God's response is immediate, like a parent rushing to the crib of their crying child. But as we move forward in the book of Judges, we will see God's response delayed, mediated. And when we get to the story of Samson, we will see that the people of Israel do not cry out to God at all. Number four is the success of the judge. Othniel leads Israel to victory in battle, and as a result, he unifies God's people. And as the book of Judges goes on, we're going to see less and less military victory, more and more kind of personal acts of revenge, and we're going to see less and less unity as a result of the judge's action. In fact, as we go on, you're going to see that the tribe of Ephraim becomes a kind of litmus test for the success or failure of a judge. You're going to have judges who go to war against Ephraim. You're going to have judges who don't ask Ephraim to come out for battle. You're going to have judges who execute Ephraimites uh, and lead their people into civil war. It gets pretty bad. Number five is uh, the judge's legacy. Othniel's story ends like this. The land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. There's a subtle change that happens in the way that the author of Judges tells these stories after the Deborah story. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, their stories all end with the land had peace for so many years. After Deborah's story, you're going to see the ending change to they served as a judge for this many years. The language of the land having peace doesn't happen anymore. And there's an interesting thing going on with the length of the judge's rule, too. In Othniel's story, Israel is subject to Aram for eight years and then has peace for 40 years. In Ehud's story, Israel is subject to Moab for 18 years and then has peace for 80 years. But after Gideon, things start to really go downhill. Jephthah's story, for example, has 18 years of foreign rule, followed by eight years of Jephthah as a judge. And Samson's story has 40 years of foreign rule, followed by 20 years of Samson as a judge. As we go deeper into the book of Judges, we are going to see that God's, God's people are spending a lot more time under foreign oppression than they are under judges. But I think number, the sixth one is the most important and is the most interesting to me. 
Othniel's story is really short. And every story after this is going to get longer and longer and longer and longer. Othniel's story is five verses. That's it. Five verses. And in this story, the name Othniel is mentioned three times. In Othniel's story, he is mentioned three times. The Lord is mentioned six times in Othniel's story. And I think that's really intentional on the part of the author. God is mentioned twice as many times as Othniel in Othniel's story. Othniel's story is about God. And as we go through the book of Judges, we will see the stories of the Judges get longer and longer, and we'll see God mentioned less and less. The stories shift dramatically from a focus on God's deliverance of his people to the personalities, foibles, and personal vendettas of the judges who become increasingly bad people. Just a minor note, we see a similar thing happen with the minor judges like Shamgar, whose story uh, we read at the end of our passage today. Uh, Shamgar's story ends with, he saved Israel. And there's six of these kind of tiny judges stories throughout the book of Judges, and they just get like more and more trivial, like less and less interesting. Shamgar saves Israel. You get to the last of these minor judges, um, Abdon, and the best that the author of Judges can say is that like his grandsons had 30 donkeys. That's, that's Abdon's story. So Othniel, Othniel sets the expectation for what a good judge should be. He gives us these six markers to look out for as we read the stories of the judges moving forward. And Ehud, in many ways, lives up to the standard uh, set by his predecessor. Ehud delivers God's people. He's victorious over their enemies. He unites God's people. Ehud's story is fleshed out quite a bit more than Othniel's. And there's no way around the fact that Ehud is like an assassin. He's crafty and deceitful and violent, and his story reflects that. But there's also this really creative and beautiful sense of irony and satire and suspense and humor. And I wish I had more time to talk to you about Ehud's story, um, but I, I just want to point out a few things that we don't quite capture in the in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, there's like a lot of wordplay going on that makes this story really, uh, really humorous. So Ehud is a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. The name Benjamin means son of my right hand. So here we have a left-handed son of the right hand, which should like perk our minds to be surprised about what is going to happen. And the story doesn't disappoint. Ehud forges a double-edged sword 
that's going to go with his double-edged message for Eglon. He brings the tribute that Moab demands and delivers the tribute that Moab deserves. And I think that probably my favorite wordplay in the entire story is that the name Eglon, the name of the king of Moab, who Ehud goes to meet, the name Eglon means fatted calf, fattened calf. And so, in a very real sense, Ehud, because Moab has demanded the best, you know, the first fruits from Israel, which they're supposed to give to God, they're supposed to give God the fattened calf, and so Ehud comes with the tribute that should go to God to deliver the fattened calves of Israel to Moab, and he offers as a sacrifice Moab's fattened calf on the altar of God's justice. Ehud's story is surprising, it's shocking, it's scandalous, it's everything that we might expect from a good action movie or murder mystery. But the deeper message of Ehud's story, and one that I want to leave the one that I want to leave you with tonight, is that God often judges and delivers his people in left-handed ways. Ways that surprise us, ways that shock us, ways that scandalize us. Throughout the book of Judges, God raises up surprising and troubling individuals who deliver his people. And throughout Scripture, we see the same thing happen over and over again. A shepherd becomes a king. A virgin becomes a mother. A fisherman becomes the rock of God's church. A Pharisee becomes a missionary of the gospel. But nowhere is God's mercy and justice more surprising, more scandalous than in the God who became a human person. The immortal one who died and the crucified one who was raised to life. In the surprising and scandalous story of God's salvation, we sing the praises of a newborn child born to die, of a crucified Savior humbled for our exaltation, of a convicted blasphemer who reveals God to us, of a resurrected Savior whose love conquers death and sin. In the shocking and surprising story of God's salvation, the one appointed as judge over all the earth, the one who will judge us before the throne of God, is the same one who gave his life for the forgiveness of our sins. (sighs) What a surprise. (laughs) Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, the scandal of your gospel surprises us and brings us joy. As we 
walk through the refining fire of this life. As you test our hearts to forge us into something greater than we could imagine. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the surprising ways in which you show us your grace even when we fail, for the scandalous ways that you forgive us even when we sin, for the shocking ways that you bring peace and healing and joy in our lives. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your justice. And we pray that you would strengthen us for the coming week, that we may serve you in truth. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.